Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week it's a look at the origins of Star Trek with the original series, 1966 to 1969. Hello. Everybody and welcome to Bondzilla Presents. I guess we can officially say this is the very first episode of the Bondzilla Presents era of this podcast. Uh, my name is Nick and I am uh, by myself today, uh, though I will get to why in just uh, a few moments. Uh, first of all, I hope all of you are having a great 2021 so far, happy and healthy as much as you can be. I know times are still tough, but uh, I hope that you guys are doing as well as you can, guys and girls out there, and I hope that the rest of the year, that the future continues to shine brightly uh, for all of us. So, yeah, this is the first episode of the Bondzilla Presents era, and I guess the best way to start is to talk about what Bonzilla Presents really is. You know, some of you are returning from uh, our classic fans of the Bonzilla podcast. Uh, some of you might be new, start checking out, hey, what's this weird Star Trek thing that's come across my feed? So uh, we welcome all uh, new and uh, old listeners, our uh, regulars and newbies. And so for those of you that know what the Bonzilla podcast is, and I'm sure most of you listening do know, uh, it was an exploration of Bond and Godzilla. It was sort of this thing where we were taking a look at these two very long-running franchises. We were ta- we were talking about their legacies. We were talking about how they got to be so long-running, the impact that they left on culture, and just finding out the weird and wild and wacky and interesting and unique things about both of these franchises that me and my regular co-host Will really love. And once we got to the end of that, you know, we were kind of thinking, what's next? And one of the things that I really liked doing about the Bondzilla podcast was looking at Bond, looking at Godzilla, and really taking in what makes those franchises so successful, what kept those legacies going, how did it go from, you know, this allegory about uh, nuclear war and sort of this spy novel thing, and how did it become so big and long-lasting, and, and what impact time and what impact you know, film culture and, 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 and historical culture and everything like that, what impact that it had on those films. And I really wanted to do that for more movies. I wanted to do that for more franchises. So, you know, we're expanding sort of in this Bonzilla Presents. We're taking that look at that legacy and that impact and what makes a franchise drive. You know, with these first two series that we're looking at, we're looking at Star Trek today, and we'll also be looking at uh, King Kong starting next month. But like Star Trek, like how did that series get to be from a canceled three-season television show in the 60s into the cornerstone of Paramount's uh, digital streaming plans? You know, how did King Kong, how is the King Kong franchise you know, continuing what appeals to us where it continues to be remade over and over and over again? Uh, and other franchises, I see some of you on our Twitter, I've seen our new banner, uh, you know, some of those other franchises like, you know, Alien and Predator and the Muppets and the D- Disney Dark Ages and, and all that sort of fun stuff, you know, Transformers, like, it would just be fun to kind of really see what keeps these series going, what impact they've lasted on us, and, and how 
history reflects on these movies. So today we're going to be looking at the Star Trek original series. Now, we've separated this from the Star Trek The Motion Pictures episode because it would just be way too much. It would be Star Trek, uh, the original series, going through that whole history, and also going through the history of the making of the original motion picture, which is such a crazy story and a lengthy story. So I felt it would be best to kind of do sort of a separate episode uh, just looking at the origins of the original series and some of my favorite episodes and everything like that. And when I was talking about it with Will... It was just interesting because I felt like, you know, we didn't need to make this another episode that Will didn't, you know, figure out what two episodes to watch if we did in the same style as The Saint uh, from our previous era. You know, it, it really just, it felt like I something I could do on myself. And also, to be fair to you guys, uh, I am also looking at doing this style in the future. Uh, I mentioned a kind of a Disney series. There's a Disney series that I would love to do just sort of in this sort of monologuing style. Uh, so please let me know what you think. I, I hope this episode turns out well. And uh, with that, I think it's time to talk about the original series. Uh, so just for the layout of this episode, what I'm going to try to do is talk about, again, the development, the origins, the actual series itself, sort of where it was in its time period and how we got to getting Kirk and Spock and, and McCoy and her and all, all our favorite Star Trek characters from the original series. Uh, as well as to kind of deeper analysis some of the characters and some of my favorite episodes and some recommendations for those of you who may be interested in checking out the original series. What kind of to look out for, what kind of to uh, talk about in terms of, you know, in terms of what uh, I love about the series and what you may love about the series. So uh, the story of Star Trek begins with its creator, which of course is Gene Roddenberry, a legendary figure in the Star Trek community, of course, because he is the creator of the series. So Roddenberry uh, was born on August 19th, 1921 to his parents in El Paso, Texas, the first child of his parents, Eugene Edward Roddenberry and Carolyn Roddenberry. Uh, they quickly moved to Los Angeles after his birth uh, a couple years later, 1923, where his father was given a police commission in the city of Los Angeles. Uh, Roddenberry, from a very early age, sort of had an interest in uh, pulp fiction, as it were, pulp magazines, uh, very big on sort of the uh, John Carter of Mars, Tarzan sort of style of storytelling, you know, Flash Gordon, all that sort of stuff from that era. For a long time, it looked like that Roddenberry was going to sort of follow in his father's footsteps. Roddenberry majored in uh, police science, which I guess is a, was a major, at the Los Angeles City College, where he also became interested in aeronautical engineering, planes, and sort of the very early days of sort of, you know, theories on space travel, of course. Uh, it was kind of, you know, this was in the 19 kind of 40s by now, so that was really far away. But there was still some, again, some of that science fiction was kind of creeping into real life. And the ideas of the future and the ideas of space travel were really not, you know, too far away. We're kind of getting into... You know, once you pass World War II, you get into the 50s when space travel really ramps up. So the, the origins of his interest in science fiction come from a very young age. But, of course, December 1941, post-Pearl Harbor, uh, Roddenberry does apply to be part of the military, uh, specifically a pilot for um, 
the the Air Corps and the Air Force of that time period. Uh, and he flew in those early days of the war. He was trained to be you know a fighter pilot for the United States. Unfortunately um, for him, he uh, crashed a plane into some trees and started a fire uh, on August 2nd, 1943, when he overshot a runway. Now, he was cleared of any wrongdoing in this scenario, that it was more an issue with the plane's transportation than anything like that. But Roddenberry basically spent the rest of the war on American shores and helping the uh, Army and Air Force front from the American side of things. So he returned uh, to the police academy, uh, the police department, Los Angeles Police Department, in 1949, and sort of made his way through that. He spent a lot of time. He spent about a year and a half uh, doing traffic, uh, traffic policing, and then later would be moved to the newspaper and information department, uh, be part of the uh, police forces, public relations. Uh, and this was when Roddenberry started to kind of realize that he did have a little bit of knack for writing as he became the chief of police speechwriter. So when the chief of police, whenever he had to make a speech to about a case or about an ongoing investigation or at a news conference, Roddenberry would be the guy to, to start writing. And through this role, he also got to be a technical advisor on a television version of of a show called Mr. District Attorney, which was an adaptation of a previous radio show, uh, I believe. Um, I had an adaptation here. I didn't write down what was an adaptation of, which is which is great for my notes, of course. That's what you love. Sometimes I don't write things down. And this is also when... This was the night, late 1940s, early 1950s. This was the birth of the television age. Uh, when sort of we were still, you know, many of the studios in Hollywood, and I think this actually will come up later in our discussion or in my my rambling here, we're still trying to figure out what the sort of the avenue for television was, because a lot of studios at this time were scared of tele of, of television, way because the film studios remembered how film basically quote-unquote, killed the radio. Obviously, radio plays were, were, and radio dramas were still a big thing, but, you know, the big money-making advertisers had on the radio moved to the studios making lots of money in film. And, you know, it basically sort of dampened a lot of radio stars' career. You know, because even with the radio, even though it was still successful, you would still most of the time have film stars cast in those radio dramas. You know, Vincent Price would do sort of some of his horror movies, but also still do some radio dramas at the time, that sort of thing. But Roddenberry, as soon as he kind of got involved with television, knew immediately that this was the future, that this there was a world of possibility with the television medium and, and its industry. And especially at this point, again, 1950, where it's still very much in its youth, and there's still a lot of trying to figure out what exactly we can do with it. So he starts to kind of write under some pseudonyms. He becomes the advisor for Mr. District Attorney. He continued to actually sell scripts to the show once he kind of got involved with how writing worked. And then another show, Highway Patrol, and some ideas for I Led Three Lives. Some of these, again, these early obscure television shows, Roddenberry was, was really starting to get a knack for this writing thing, but found it increasingly impossible to be 
a policeman on on the job while also trying to write these scripts. So eventually, he resigned from the force in 1956 uh, to become a full-time television writer. So a lot of the stuff in television at this time was the westerns, the cop procedurals, and obviously Roddenberry had it in with the cop procedurals and the detective shows because he was a police officer. He had the experience, and you know, the television executives, film executives loves when you kind of have that experience to really bring something real or that, you know, it just had a little bit of those details that would make, you know, a good show that would get ratings and advertisers. But Roddenberry had a wider view. Like he, he started off on those cop shows. He would eventually move on to do some westerns, like Have Gun, Will Travel. Wagon Train, of course, was also very big at this time. But Roddenberry already had a sort of eye on kind of more unique fare uh, for television. So like uh, early on in his writing career, right after he stopped working in the police force, he pitched a series called Hawaiian Passage, which would be entirely set on a cruise ship, but the networks didn't buy, especially CBS, which was where he got his his major pitch, uh, just because it was a little bit too off the beaten path. And plus, Roddenberry knew that he had already kind of seen the industry and wanted to have sort of more control than the normal writer had. So for a first-time pitcher pitching this weird show on a Hawaiian cruise ship. He was trying to get full creative control and producer's rights, and the networks weren't going to go for that for a brand new spanking writer who had just quit the police force to be a writer. Uh, but that would be... And we'll get to that once we get into the actual production of Star Trek. Roddenberry's desire for control and desire to really showcase his vision becomes a very defining element of his style. And his sort of legacy as part of the Star Trek franchise. So after being a, uh, you know, a regular writer in the industry and having gotten some, you know, Writers Guild Award nominations and and just being known as a reliable writer who would always kind of put together a pretty good episode to a great episode in in the, you know, whatever he was writing. And also, again, Roddenberry was able to go between these westerns and these cop procedurals and these detective shows pretty easily so people knew that he had a great variety into what he could do um Roddenberry started to get a lot more of those pitching opportunities he signed a deal with Screen Gems a company that gave him some backing in terms of money to kind of you know pitch pilots and and create pilots for for television shows uh his closest opportunity before his first one which we'll get to in a second it was 30 uh, 333 Montgomery, which was about a lawyer, uh, and the pilot starred future Star Trek star DeForest Kelly. And this is, I think we'll see, where he gets to kind of play with a lot of these actors that would appear in Star Trek and become friends with. So Roddenberry's first attempts with Screen Gems didn't really get off the ground, and he basically sort of moved on to other opportunities. And that would lead eventually, though, after many attempts of trying to get a pilot on the air, uh... He did get his first pilot and his first series uh, in 1961. Uh, started pitch 1961-1962 called The Lieutenant, which was essentially the goings-on, the drama of sort of life on a military naval base. Uh, and it would lead opportunities for different guest stars, different dramatic opportunities uh, for, you know, the series. So the series aired on NBC 
it, it aired on NBC in 1963, September 1963, and was a major success right away. Uh, set a new rating record for its uh, Saturday night 7.30 time slot. So Roddenberry sort of had a success under his belt. So the show lasts one season, only has one season on the air. But during that time period, Roddenberry would sort of meet a lot of people that and use a lot of people that he was friends with. Uh, from the industry. So Little Lieutenant is where, of course, he first comes into contact with Leonard Nimoy, writer Gary Alcoon, who would be a big part of the Star Trek series going forward, uh, as well as Nichelle Nichols, the future Uhura, and was an opportunity to get a role for a person that he was starting to care about very much, Majel Lee Hudek, who would eventually go by her more familiar name of Majel Barrett. So this is a part where I do kind of want to get into a little bit more of the personal life of Roddenberry because it is important to note that Roddenberry was was sort of a a a ladies man slash womanizer. Uh, Roddenberry he's an interesting man, and I think that the deeper you get into him, the more fascinating he becomes. Roddenberry was definitely a man who, like the the character on um, the lieutenant, was very idealistic. had had a wide eyed view of the world, and specifically for Roddenberry, had a wide eyed view of the future, the potential uh, of the future. Very much sort of the hope for uh, equal rights and hope for sort of better times for for every every person, every type of person but also was very much into, at this point, the 60s sort of style of love, uh, the very free style. So Roddenberry was married at this point, uh, was married at the time of the lieutenant as we get into sort of the lead-up to Star Trek actual 1964. He was married at this time, but during his time at Screen Gems, met Majel Barrett, and sort of they clicked immediately, and... It was this. It was one of those situations where yes, he was married, but this really was the woman that he sort of loved, and Majel loved him very much. Like they they were inseparable. And then, while doing the lieutenant, uh, Roddenberry also meets Nichelle Nichols, and also starts a relationship sort of with her on. Uh, on the kind of the side as well. So he, he was, he's kind of balancing sort of three relationships uh, at this point in his lifetime. And somehow, you know, he does eventually divorce his original wife, which who he had originally met uh, at his time in college. And his hope during this time period was to engage in a sort of open relationship between him, Michelle Barrett, and Nichelle Nichols. But Nichelle... I mean, I mean, I give her all the credit in the world. She claimed that she they departed on good terms because she, Nichelle, noticed how much Michelle Barrett basically looked up to and sort of cared for Roddenberry. And Nichelle said, no matter what happened, even if I did agree to this open relationship, which from all accounts seems like at least she had thought about the idea, um... She said that she would rather not be the other woman to the other woman. That Michelle would eventually be, excuse me, Michelle would eventually be the woman of his life, and that was that was the truth. That Roddenberry and Michelle 
would go on to marry and go on to have a very lengthy relationship, uh, some of which we'll be able to kind of track over the course of uh, this production and or sort of the series itself. So, and Michelle, I mean, she began, you know, and I'll talk about her a little bit because she does get cast on Star Trek. Uh, she becomes the first lady of Star Trek, and up until her death, uh, you know, after Roddenberry's death, up until her death, Michelle very much was sort of the ambassador of Star Trek and took that legacy over from Roddenberry. So the two of them, even though Roddenberry's did have this kind of very open, very free look of love, he did find the love of his life in in Michelle Barrett, and uh, you know, they two the two of them lived very very happily over the years. So after the the lieutenant. Again, was very successful in that first season, uh, but you know, only lasted that one season. As some television shows did, that it started off hot, didn't really get anywhere, and the studio, the network uh, of MGM and NBC, felt that they had really gotten as much as they were going to get out of of the lieutenant. So it started off in 1963 and basically lasted until that next year. So Roddenberry, after the after the cancellation or in the throes of the lieutenant, kind of went back to an earlier idea that he had, you know, and at that time there was going to be a little bit of a science fiction element to it, you know, science fiction on television at that time definitely. I mean, Star Trek wouldn't be the first, but it really was sort of not a common thing. I mean, the most things you were getting in terms of science fiction stuff on television at this time was more of the anthology stuff, stuff more in the realm of the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits, stuff like that. Or, or or maybe sort of one or two, like Captain Video and his video crew, I think was another one uh, from the early days of television. But they weren't as definitely common as what you're seeing with the Westerns and the procedurals and the military shows. Uh, and even the, you know, the, the real rise of the sitcoms happened around this time period too. But the science fiction thing doesn't really kind of get off the ground. But Ron Barry, after the success of the Lieutenant, he does have, you know, people, though it lasted one season, they saw that it had that initial boost and thought that Ron Barry sort of had some potential. So he starts to consider his original airship idea and sort of expands it from an airship or going around the world to a starship going across the galaxy. It kind of even goes back to the original Hawaiian Passage, that original cruise ship show of just, again, traveling and going to different locations, that he was always interested in sort of that element of a show and kind of doing a more expansive version of Wagon Train, which was, again, a kind of a Western where the Wagon Train would go to a different location, to different, a different place every episode. Um, as well as being a uh, inspired by uh, the fictional character of Horatio Hornblower, the famous sort of uh, ship captain, and, and kind of putting a personality in that into outer space and wanting to do that multiracial crew, that multicultural crew that he felt that was lacking very much, not just on television, but basically all kind of entertainment at that time, that there was an opportunity to kind of really showcase a better world, a world where everybody works together. The civil rights era, and obviously we're still sort of fighting for some of those civil rights in this era, but this, you know, this is what we associate with civil rights. So a lot of that was on the mind of people like Roddenberry and, and ways to showcase, well, we can work towards a better future, which which Roddenberry thought that there, 
wasn't much shows on the air that were kind of working towards the future. Again, a lot of the stuff, if you think about it, much of the Westerns were talking about the past. Much of the police procedurals not were not old hat, but basically many of them were, were old-fashioned in the sense that they were kind of going off of those 40s noirs and sort of the, those 50s sort of investigation movies and shows that there wasn't really much looking towards the future. Uh, as well as, you know, this was the, also the era of John F. Kennedy and his promise that we were going to get into space by uh, the end of the decade, and we eventually do in 1969. Uh, though Star Trek, unfortunately, as we'll get to, wasn't on the air when we did land on the moon. So all this kind of coalesces into an idea that Roddenberry submits to the Writers Guild as Star Trek. So Roddenberry originally had his in with MGM, which had produced uh, the the lieutenant for NBC. And though they listened to his pitch and seemed enthusiastic, they unfortunately uh, did not find much interest once they talked about it in a science fiction series. Again, they didn't think that this there was room for it at that time. So after MGM, after MGM rejects that Star Trek pitch, he eventually makes his way to Desilu Productions. Uh, Desilu Productions was one of the many independent television studios that had sprung up out of the 50s when the, when the studios weren't taking television seriously and were actively afraid of television taking over cinema. Basically, uh, at that time, the only you know in the 50s, the only major studio really doing anything with television was the Walt Disney Studio. But most of the other television production came originally from these independent studios like Desilu. And now that we're in the 60s, obviously, the original networks themselves and the studios like MGM and Universal and everything like that, they do see, you know, the benefits of television and the money they could make on television. So now they, the bigger studios are competing with these original smaller studios that have made a name for themselves. The Roddenberry kind of took the Star Trek idea to their head of programming, Oster Katz. After Roddenberry had helped produce another half-hour pilot, called Police Story based on his time as a kind of policeman and as a police procedural writer, he got this opportunity to finally get this pitch in. And Oscar Katz took it to it immediately and basically kind of took it up to the head of the Desilu creative division, Lucille Ball. So yes, I kind of hit it a little bit before, but Desilu was originally created by Lucille Ball and her husband, to help facilitate the I Love Lucy show, uh, which you know was very much different than what the networks were looking for at that time. Again, other than Disney, not many of those networks and studios were were really well. The networks obviously were looking for content, but the studios were not really helping those networks or not really getting getting into it. So, Lucy and her husband created uh, Lucille and her husband created I Love Lucy. And that was a big hit. But now the company was sort of in a financial straits because really now Lucille Ball was truly their only star. And they, they had a lot of kind of flops for television, but they, they really saw potential in Star Trek. And Lucille was noted as someone who always enjoyed to kind of try to look to the future of, of television and thought that really there wasn't much sci-fi on television, but there was a sense that, you know, we were heading towards the moon. We were heading more towards space travel, the space race, everything of that nature, satellites. That Lucille and her team and Oscar Katz and the team at Disney saw that there was much potential in Star Trek uh, as a series, especially for its, again, the pitch of wagon trains to the stars where they could have 
different episodes in different planets and locations, which would seem very expensive, but was appealing just in terms of the idea and something unique for television. So Lucille gives the final go-ahead with Oscar Katz to start pitching the idea to networks. The first network they go to is actually CBS, who basically sort of took the pitch to kind of learn what they could to help out their own in-house developed science fiction series that they were going to soon put on the air, which is Lost in Space. Uh, so they thought that they could kind of get some insight about what, uh, what other science fiction stuff was going on in the industry to help develop their Lost in Space show, but also felt that having two science fiction shows on one network was just going to be way too much, way too much of a risk that they were already kind of going in on Lost in Space, uh, that they didn't need a second one on the air. But eventually, Roddenberry goes back to his friends at NBC that had, of course, uh, put the lieutenant on the air and and pitched it in a very different way uh, that, you know, they kind of learned that, you know, maybe not to play up the science fiction elements of the show, but instead, again, really kind of put it in the same realm as those Westerns. It's basically saying this is wagon train. This is gun smoke in space that we're going to have our character go to a different planet, different town you know, have a different thing every episode and, you know, and, and, and sort of explore the crew of this ship as they go through. Uh, and, and that was really, again, the way that Star Trek was sold. It was sort of the, the Westerns of that time, but just in a very different setting. And obviously it would evolve from that, but as a writer, sometimes you just got to pitch to what they want to hear. The network didn't, re- you know, NBC didn't want to necessarily say, here's this new thing. It's really like, here's a different spin on this old thing. So the network that is NBC, again, had a great relationship with Roddenberry, decided to give it a shot. So the way that they decided to, you know, go about this originally is they pay for Roddenberry to give them three story outlines. And they would kind of pick the best one and make it as a pilot. So eventually Roddenberry gets these three done and eventually comes through with a pilot called The Cage. Now, The Cage uh, was shot in late 1964 and was a very different show than what ended up being on the air in terms of especially its cast. I mean, this is sort sort of a famous story here, but the original cast of the show was we had Captain Pike who was played by a man named Jeffrey Hunter Leonard Nimoy was Mr. Spock but more specifically just the science officer that much of he did have the pointed ears but essentially sort of the the Vulcan nature that we know of Spock has was very much not there in fact a lot of those elements came from the second-in-command on the ship, number one, the mysterious sort of female, stoic female character played by none other than Majo Barrett, that Roddenberry had taken an opportunity to get his his lover, uh, the love of his life, a, a high-profile role on his new TV show. Uh, so the cage... Uh, and many of the other casts, there's very not even close. To, at this point, there's no DeForest Kelly. There's no McCoy. Uh, there's no Sulu. There's no Uhura. 
the Scotty character, a version of the Scotty character, is very much a, a very minor role in the show at this point. So the cage eventually, you know, is made with that very different cast, and eventually, finally finishes shooting and editing with the special effects in February 1965. The NBC team was very mixed on the final results. They loved the look of the show. They were impressed by, quote, its realistic portrayal, that they thought that the sets were very good and and sort of it really captured you into the world. But they unfortunately felt that the pilot lacked action, was kind of boring. It was very much a, a very talky pilot. They did not appreciate that Roddenberry placed his sort of girlfriend, lover, still sort of an affair type of girl, at least as far as the executives knew. And it was kind of an open secret at this point. I mean, the man tried to get an open relationship with multiple people. So it wasn't really necessarily a secret that he kind of had this this kind of relationship with Majo Barrett. So they didn't appreciate that he kind of placed her in. And they didn't appreciate the satanic look of Mr. Spock. But NBC saw the potential here. They saw, they really felt like this itself might not sell, that the cage as a pilot might not sell. But the Star Trek idea has legs. So NBC and Desilu make an unprecedented agreement to produce a second pilot for the show. NBC is going to get three more scripts from Roddenberry. The major request that they have, or one of the major requests that they have, is Roddenberry has to pick or choose. He has to choose putting his girlfriend on the show as number one. He has to choose Majo Barrett. Or he has to choose Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. And Roddenberry chose to keep Leonard Nimoy as Spock because, as he said... If I chose Majo Barrett, I wouldn't have been able to marry Leonard Nimoy. I don't think that would have worked. So he eventually decides to keep Leonard Nimoy on the show, that he loved working with them on The Lieutenant. And much of sort of the stoic, unemotional nature that was originally with Majo Barrett's character, who was just known as number one, was then transferred onto Spock. And that's kind of where we get the Spock character that we know and love today. So NBC wanted these sort of scripts and eventually Ron Barry wrote out three of them. They were titled where no man has gone before muds women and the Omega glory. And actually where no man has gone before was also kind of co-written by Samuel a people's another big friend of Roddenberry's. Now all three of these episodes would eventually be made into the series, uh, Mud's Women in Season 1, and then Omega Glory really kind of got pulled back out when they needed more scripts for Season 2. But NBC chooses Where No Man Has Gone Before, uh, which does become the new pilot of the series because they felt that it had the action that they were looking for. It had sort of... It really kind of pitched the outer space spectacle of the show. One of the things that ended up happening with this show, with the new pilot, is sort of the changing of the cast... Uh, the original Captain Pike, played by, again, Jeffrey Hunter, did not return for the show. He was convinced by his wife that the second pilot was a bad idea, 
and that she, quote, did not want her husband's career ruined by science fiction. So Jeffrey Hunter leaves the role of Captain Pike, and so Roddenberry must find a new captain. His original choice was Lloyd Bridges, father of Jeff Bridges and Bew Bridges, uh, who probably is honestly most known to audiences today as um, his character in Airplane, the the head of the air traffic control, uh, and his kind of guest role on Seinfeld that kind of came about in terms of that big career renaissance like many of those airplane actors had. Uh, but Lloyd was a very fairly big television star around this time and, and very much a notable name. But that also kind of didn't allow Lloyd to really do it. He, he was kind of too big of a name for a show like this. Uh, the second choice that Roddenberry had was Jack Lord, whom Bondzilla regulars will know uh, as the first... Uh, he was coming off the first... being the first Felix Leiter in Dr. No. So Jack Lord sort of had a couple options at this table, especially around 1965. He had refused, you know, he had been looking for money uh, to return to the Felix Slater role for Goldfinger, and obviously, as history shows, us didn't get it. So he was entertaining a couple of other offers, and eventually was make his way to Hawaii Five O, which was where, which was probably his most famous role. So then, coming into their laps for auditions was one William Shatner. Now, one thing I haven't really been, you know, a lot of times you're kind of talking about what these actors were kind of doing around this time. Many of the actors that you see on Star Trek obviously weren't major stars of their period, but they were working television actors that, you know, Roddenberry, uh, I should say, Roddenberry knew, you know, uh, Leonard Nimoy from stuff like he would guest star on The Lieutenant. He would guest star on, on some of those westerns and other police procedurals. Now Shatner did actually have, was one of the few actors in Hollywood that had some science fiction experience in that Shatner had appeared in the 50s in the show's Twilight Zone and uh, as well as The Outer Limits. I mean Twilight Zone, he's most known for the you know uh, Terror 20,000 Feet with the gremlin on the wing. He also has another episode where he he has the uh, the thing in the diner. I'm looking for the word in my head. Uh, I am a big Twilight Zone fan, but sometimes, you know, that's one I should get on DVD at some point. I really should get the complete series because Twi- the original Twilight Zone is fantastic if you've never seen it. Uh, you know, actually very much like Trek uh, where it's like as high as are just so high, which again, we will get to. But eventually, uh, Shatner basically just auditions for the role and, 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 and Roddenberry loves the performance and again sort of Roddenberry is reminded of that original Horatio Hornblower influence that he had uh, when first coming up with the series and he saw that Kirk uh, sorry he saw that Shatner really sort of embodied that sort of energy and, and really sort of was able to craft the character uh, around it so eventually the character of James T. Kirk uh, is created for Shatner and created as the new captain of this starship known as the Enterprise. There's a lot of changes that still go down between the pilot and the actual production of the series. For example, we still do not have Leonard McCoy. We still do not have DeForest Kelly in the role. Uh, The ship's doctor in that first episode is veteran actor Paul Fix. James Duhon finally comes into the character of Scotty, though that character really wouldn't become much of a thing until much later in season one, and George Sakai as Sulu. 
Sulu was the physicist and again would eventually transition into one of the helmsmen on the show. Uh, Takai noted uh, very much originally that he was one of the things he was most impressed about the audition process is that one of the things Roddy uh, uh, Roddenberry implemented was essentially a uh, no never to never look for a specific race for a character. Takai noted that it was just he felt that just sort of the character of being able to be the character of Sulu was just very neat for him originally because again most of the time when he was auditioning for roles as a Japanese American it was very much Japanese related roles. So the fact that he could be and yes that the Sulu character did integrate some of his Japanese American heritage into some of the uh, roles that they with some of the episodes that they had down the line the fact that he could just audition to be Sulu even if it was, it was just the physicist and then getting a large role as the helmsman on the series itself was just neat for him uh, so yeah Duhan comes in and the 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 pilot the new pilot more man has gone before does end up being a great success for the NBC executives Roddenberry felt that you know at the end of the day Roddenberry sort of felt that it wasn't you know, that much different or that much better than um, what the cage was. Maybe it was a little bit better in his eyes. But he, he said that the thing that sold the show to the network is that Kirk and Gary Mitchell have a big fist fight at the end. And that was the action they were looking for. And, and that Roddenberry was still able to get his, again, the kind of the science fiction and, you know, the godliness and, and the whole thing of Gary Mitchell getting more powerful, convincing one of the other, you know, given some godly powers to sort of this woman that he sort of coerced into being on his side and, and sort of, sort of this, this morality thing about, you know, whether they kill, you know, whether Kirk can kill one of his friends of 15 years because he's posing a danger to not just the ship, but possibly the entire universe with his, with his newfound godly powers. And so Roddenberry was still, what we really liked about this original sort of era of Star Trek was he was able to still, meet the network's needs for those action, those fist fights that, you know, the show would kind of become famous for in, in many years down the line. Or at least one become one of the most iconic elements of the show were the kind of the Kirk fist fights uh, that, that he would have occasionally. So he would be able to give them their action and their fist fights, but also still be able to explore all the things that he wants to explore. That the, the you know, and given this opportunity to be this cultural you know, look to the, again, bright look to the future in terms of a cultural mingling uh, on this ship, as well as exploring, you know, some of the things like prejudice and, uh, and the unknown and, and, and sort of, you know, the character relationships that he was looking for. So the final version of their second pilot uh, was eventually accepted by NBC. Uh, the final version was exactly, as I said, what they were looking for and put it on the air for their 1966-1967 season with an initial production order of 13 episodes that would eventually be lengthened to a full 20-something episode season. Now, between the recording of the pilot and the actual production of the series, a few more changes were made. Roddenberry was able to place uh, Majel Barrett back in the series as Nurse Chapel, which highly amused the NBC executives. The original Doctor character that was played by Paul Fix was finally replaced by the uh, Doctor McCoy character played by DeForest Kelly. Now, DeForest Kelly, again, had worked on that 
333 Montgomery pilot back uh, in the like early 60s with Roddenberry, and Roddenberry loved DeForest Kelly. And uh, they felt that he was just going to be a better fit for the series long term, and eventually, of course, it does. He becomes the kind of main part of the main three of the series that kind of the Kirk, Spock, McCoy triumvirate really forms the core of the series relationships. Though the marketing for the series originally focused on the characters of Kirk, Spock, and Janice Rand, uh, who was played by Grace Lee Whitney. And uh, the original plans for the Rand character seemed to have been pretty large uh, in terms of possibly a romantic interest for uh, Kirk as, as uh, Rand was the yeoman of Kirk's captain and basically his assistant, his confidant. Uh, and so there was a lot of original plans for Kirk to open up to Janice Rand and, and that that sort of stuff that would eventually get into the McCoy and Kirk relationship and their deep friendship was originally intended for the Janice Rand character. Unfortunately for Grace Lee Whitney, uh, Janice Rand was a character that was eliminated halfway through the first season. Uh, so many of the plans for the character were never made uh, to be. Now, I should talk about this now. There was for a long time, and it still sort of is, a mystery around why the Janice Rand character disappeared from the series, especially being so heavily involved in original marketing and having moments in those in those first those first half, those first 13 episodes of season one, that final first half of the production series. Now, the story always was, and there may be truth to this, uh, is that the executives at NBC felt that they were more comfortable with Kirk kind of having relationship with, with the different women as he went to these different planets and wanted to focus on that more and didn't want to kind of tie him down to having this potential relationship with Janice Rand. Though years after this, uh, Rand, uh, so the, the actress for Rand, Grace Lee Whitney, would would uh, write in her autobiography that she had always felt that the reason that she was let go is that she was unfortunately sexually assaulted by one of the executives at NBC after a meeting about her character and that the executive most likely uh, wanted her fired out of some sort of guilt or, or anger or a little bit of, of both. Um, but I will say that one of the things I have come to appreciate, uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but one of the things I've come to appreciate about the Star Trek fandom is how they really rally around the actors who have been involved, uh, especially in these classic Trek productions. And though Rand only had those 13 episodes, uh, the Trek's fandom would constantly uh, support her and invite her to the Star Trek adventures that would eventually pop up. Uh, Roddenberry would eventually apologize to Grace Lee Whitney about uh, sort of not sticking up for her and kind of giving in to the network pressure because, again, he was worried about the you know the status of his show. Uh, and she would eventually make her way back into the Trek franchise for multiple of the original series movies and even had some guest appearances on uh, stuff like uh, Star Trek Voyager down the line. So, um, you know, it's unfortunate that, that you know, that, that way it went down and, and sort of, you know, and, and it, all, it all seems such like such a mess. But, you know, uh, just felt like that, that warranted mentioning um, if we're talking about the original series. But speaking of that, that we, we kind of move on, as I do need to talk about as well, that we also add uh, Uhura, uh, by, played by Nichelle Nichols. So again, Nichelle was very much still friendly with Roddenberry. 
uh, at the time that even though they had sort of this kind of weird triumvirate open relationship thing that even when she broke it off, she was very uh, friendly with Ron Barry and Ron Barry still cared so much for Nichelle that he, and and he also had figured that once he kind of looked at that first pilot, that he wanted a little more diversity on the bridge that, you know, it was very male heavy. And, you know, even on the bridge itself that they moved Sulu from the psych, the the physicist role into the helmsman role, uh, that they were still very, very white on, on the uh, bridge as well. So he decided at the very last minute that Nichelle Nichols is or her was the last character cast and created for the show to give again, a little bit more of that diversity that Roddenberry was looking for. The first season was decently successful, I would say, that it wasn't a rating smash, especially even not up to the standards that the lieutenant had had, but it did get some attention. Uh, I mean, again, enough attention that they the initial 13-episode order was extended to a full season, but Roddenberry still had a worry about this was going to go the same way as the lieutenant that it was just going to last one season and it was just there was going to be no more opportunities so Roddenberry kind of started to reach out to some of his writing friends at uh, many of those sci-fi science fiction writers that had started to kind of pitch scripts for the series such as Harlan Ellison um and many of these sci-fi writers you know wrote letters and in and, and, and Roddenberry used their names in, in letters and pitches to continue the series because they were all looking for more jobs and they knew that Star Trek was really, you know, the one sci-fi show that they could kind of sink their teeth into because the other one that was on the networks at the time, again, Lost in Space, was very much, again, the Irwin Allen family-friendly production that it really wasn't something that, you know, especially with the stuff that Star Trek was doing even in its first season, these writers saw a lot of potential and, you know, decided to kind of make their voices heard and keep in the series as well as Roddenberry had already started to establish a relationship with science fiction fandom. He had brought the uh, pilot episode where no man has gone before to the 24th world science fiction convention and previewed that pilot before it went to air. And so Roddenberry was already kind of getting this sort of legendary status, even early on in this first season among the, the science fiction fans of the world because he was putting on this very fascinating and interesting science fiction show on television when, again, many of those didn't really exist at that time or really had ever existed up to that point. So Roddenberry also started to reach out to some of the fans he had met at this convention to sort of write letters. Now, this first sort of, this wasn't the most famous of the letter writing and, and, and kind of the, the campaigns to keep Star Trek uh, but this was still notable, although the executives at NBC noted that this one was all for naught because they were already planning to you know, continue the series. So the series continues on and, and continues to really find its voice uh, towards that second half of this first season into the second season. But the ratings just never really settled out. That The, the ratings continue to decline over that second season to the point where most of the cast were, uh, especially Shatner and, and, and Nimoy were very much already making their plans to start guest starring on other series or what other pilots were available for them to audition for. And one of the other things that was sort of going on around the show that necessitated some looking into it from, from all sides was Roddenberry's 
dedication to making to putting his vision out there is what I should say. And what I mean by that is that Roddenberry for those first two seasons was all hands on everything. The man was notorious for basically putting a rewrite on almost every script that he had uh, given to him per- like personally, like not just saying like, hey, I need you to rewrite this. Roddenberry would have no qualms about just taking a script and rewriting it, you know, in, in his vision. Or handing it off to his story editor for that first season, Stephen L. Carabastos. And most notably, his second season story editor, D.C. Fontana, also known as Dorothy Fontana. Uh, Dorothy, of course, was one of the few female writers at this time in an industry that still really didn't give many opportunities. And honestly, still doesn't give many opportunities, but didn't give many opportunities to female writers. And Roddenberry, again, in his sort of vision of the future, basically loved that these these episodes that DC Fontana had written for the first season and made her a story editor for the second season. But my point is that Roddenberry had no qualms about making sure that his vision was the vision of the show. To the frustration of many, 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 many writers, to the frustrations of the executives at NBC, and to an extent even in the frustration of some of the cast and crew who who knew that Roddenberry was going to always have sort of his, the final word was Roddenberry's. And, you know, most notably Harlan Ellison's famous script, The City on the Edge of Forever, eventually won Writer's Guild Award and was the only Star Trek episode of that original series to really win any of those types of awards. Um, But though Ellison, Ellison got the final credit, the script was rewritten by Roddenberry and Fontana and a couple of other writers to the point where Ellison only had two of his original lines in the script at all. And Ellison's speech when winning the award was very much shade thrown at Roddenberry as he sort of proclaimed that writers should have more protections and that their work should not be overridden by producers and executives. But, I mean, Roddenberry was going as far as he would, he created themes, sorry, he created lyrics for the original Star Trek theme so that he would have credit as the writer of the Star Trek song, which greatly pissed off the original series composer Alexander Courage, which, I mean, why wouldn't you be pissed off? That's kind of a, a shady thing to do. But Roddenberry, I mean, that was just Star Trek right now was basically the thing of all the things he had written, that he was the most passionate about. And he really wanted to continue to explore these different morality things and ethics and, again, world problems and issues. And, and Roddenberry just never wanted to let go until we get to the end of the second season. So we get to the end of the second season of Star Trek. And it's very much in the same boat as the first season that Roddenberry was worried that the series was going to get canceled again. And and most people, again, on the show expected this to be the end. So Roddenberry helped set up another sort of protest to keep the show on the air. For this one, he mostly did it with the younger Star Trek fandom, the kind of college-age Star Trek fandom that was the bulk of who he had met at these science fiction conventions and was a bulk of that he had heard feedback about about the show. He he turned to these um, younger viewers because 
unlike with the first season sort of quote-unquote protest, is that most of the writers that he had been friendly with in that first season or through that first season, again, had now sort of turned on Roddenberry because Roddenberry was rewriting all of their scripts, that many of them had decided, you know, Ellison wanted to do it under a pseudonym, but Roddenberry refused. But many other writers ended up using pseudonyms because they were not happy with the finished product, even if... You know, some of those episodes, like, I mean, Sitting on the Edge of Forever, for example, is considered the best episode of all time, or, or at least among them. Uh, and many of the other episodes that Roddenberry rewrite, to his credit, not all of them, but many of them are on that list of just those episodes that people really love and that Roddenberry kind of knew his characters and his audience. But it just didn't help that the the writers were not happy. So he didn't kind of have that the science fiction community support in that end. So Roddenberry decided to get these these college students. He contacted a Star Trek fan called Bo Trimble, and he helped organize a march on the studio. So on January 8th, 1968, a thousand students uh, from 20 different schools who were fans of Star Trek marched outside of the NBC and Desilu production studios and demanded that the series return to air, as well as many, 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 many letters written. There was a large letter writing campaign for the series to remain on the air and uh trimble also noted that one of the things that this did other than you know hopefully give nbc and desilu more reason to kind of keep funding the show was that this was kind of the birth of the united trek community that many of the the again these 20 different schools these thousands of students sort of met and sort of began to kind of keep in contact and congregate about specifically the Star Trek fandom, uh, which as we go forward will, will be a big part of how the series gets to continue. They created kind of an organized fandom. About 6,000 letters were sent to NBC. And finally, at the near the end of season two, NBC made its final decision to renew Star Trek for a third season. The Star Trek show had gone through a couple of time slot changes, and many of them were not great for that younger audience. The audience was really attaching itself to Star Trek. So the original plan was going to be that NBC was going to place the show Monday nights at 7.30 to give it right uh, a big boost of, uh, of attention. Monday night was a very coveted role the the 7:30 slot on Monday night was um, just vacated by the departing the network man from Uncle Show. Again, there's a kind of con- a weird connection of stuff we've talked about before. But uh, a major name uh, in their network, uh, George Schlatter, was very upset that this kind of show that had already hit in his head already proven that it wasn't going to work was going to get this very coveted Man from Uncle time slot uh, instead of his show, The Rowan and Martin's Laughing, which was sort of a kind of sketch comedy show that he felt had just as much uh, opportunity to appeal to a younger audience and very had a very psychedelic edge to it. And he, he thought that that was his for what he had done with the network before and kind of his name. And eventually NBC relented to Schlatter's demands and gave that slime slot to the Rowan and Martin Laffin show. And then Roddenberry and Star Trek was given the dreaded 10 o'clock on Friday time slot. The death slot. No, because again, the Friday night death slot is an infamous 
constant of television history from the 60s all the way up until the 2000s. The Friday night death slot is the, the theory goes that, you know, people are going out after school on, on Friday nights, that they're going into the weekend. Friday night, they're headed out. They're going out to clubs and parties and, and hang, hanging out. They're not staying home and watching TV. So it was always very hard for a show to make its way to Friday night and keep successful. So Star Trek going from one really last opportunity to have a great time slot into that Friday night death slot really just crushed Roddenberry's spirits. And he was tired of fighting with the writers. He was tired of fighting with the executives. He basically was reading the writing on the wall at this point, especially because also during that second season, the ownership of Desilu changed. You know, having worked with Oscar Katz and Lucille Ball to get that show on the air, the Lucille and her new business partner at Desilu just, they couldn't make it work that the business decisions that they had, you know, the, the odd business decisions that they had made early in their history had really started to catch up with them to the point where, again, even, again, Star Trek wasn't doing well. Mission Impossible was basically, you know, barely doing well for them at this point or, not, or doing well enough, but not making the money that they needed. And, 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 you know, all they really had was to keep putting Lucille Ball on the air, which she, you know, was kind of at a point where it was just a debate about whether she wanted to keep doing like the Lucille Ball show and, and the Lucille show and all these different redos of what was I Love Lucy. So eventually uh, Lucille and Desilu are uh, sell to the Gulf and Western Company, which you know, owns Paramount Pictures, and Desilu is folded into Paramount to become Paramount Television. So he had new ownership that it was going to be on his back, and he was fighting with NBC, he was fighting with his writers, and it was just too much for Roddenberry, and he was just burned out that even though he had fought to save his show for a third th season, he just didn't know how he could kind of continue. So Roddenberry decides to step down for the third season at, from a day-to-day -day perspective and instead sort of take on a, a more farther away executive role uh, in the making of the show. He continued to you know keep an eye on things, but started to like kind of look at other opportunities for himself. And this sort of really was the death nail in Star Trek because even though that third season does obviously get made, the quality of the show drastically went down. Again, to credit with Roddenberry, uh, even though he was constantly on, you know, rewriting everything and putting his vision, it was sort of his vision that kind of kept the show afloat for those two seasons. And once he kind of took away and started to tie and develop other projects, unfortunately, you know, and DC Fontana also talked about this. So she left the story editor, but still sort of freelanced for the show. And she noted that the new story editors and the new executive and the new producers at the show really didn't have an understanding of the characters and sort of the style of the show. And it's not to say that there are no good episodes in that third season. I'll get to that uh, in our second half of our episode today. But there was a drastic sort of the the show started to lead into sort of the worst and started to become much more action heavy, much more focused on Kurt's relationship with women and and just sort of had a larger inconsistency than those first two seasons did. 
And so at the end of the 1969 season of television and with with ratings continuing to dwindle down and down, Star Trek, the original series, or just known as Star Trek at that time, of course, uh, was finally canceled and finally taken off the air. And at that point, Roddenberry was pretty much prepared to kind of step away from Star Trek entirely, that he didn't see much of a future with the franchise. So he sold all his rights and all his kind of percentage of owning of the franchise back to Paramount and decided to fully focus on other projects. And, and, you know, normally I would kind of save that stuff for the aftermath, but I felt it was really important to kind of get the whole series kind of in the scope of kind of what the show, the production of the show was like. And of course, every individual episode had its own stories and, you know, they they had very very much budget concerns. But I I think a lot of that and more specifics of the episodes and the characters and sort of my feelings on the show will be better suited for uh, a longer discussion after this short break. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Star Trek, the original series. For me, first of all, I love it. I love the original series. Uh, You know, everybody has their own Star Trek that they love in terms of a show. They love the original series or they love The Next Generation or Voyager or Deep Space Nine or uh, I guess some people like Enterprise. I don't know. I shouldn't shouldn't speak ill about Enterprise. Um, But usually it's like what's, you know, as Weird Al once put it, you know, do I like Spock or do I like Picard? And, I, I mean, I do appreciate the the next generation, and we'll definitely, you know, talk more about that down the road. But there's such a joy of rewatching and revisiting and constantly revisiting the original series and these characters and sort of the style. Now, the one thing I will say, or I have many things to say, but the one thing I'll start off with is that Star Trek, for better or for worse, is a 60s television series. And what I mean by that is that, yes, you know, certain elements definitely have not aged. Uh, and even, you know, and even in considering sort of its more progressive views for the future of that time, things have still not aged um, in certain ways. But also what I mean is that there's... What I kind of find whenever I revisit any sort of series from that original kind of television era is that very few of them really do have like a great consistency to them. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that just the way that television was made was very different. The way that television was viewed was very different. And one of the things I mean in terms of Star Trek and the best way to put it is that yes, there are some dreadful episodes of course and there are some milling episodes but the, but the highs of Star Trek are incredibly high and those episodes that have aged well 
are so good. This, they're just so much fun to watch, at least in, in my opinion. And what really drives that to me, what really makes the original series sort of my favorite of this Trek stuff, and I think something that is really worth a revisit, are its characters. It's a show that really, the fun of it is through its characters in their most dramatic, in their most funny and humorous. The, the characters of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Scotty, Uhura, Sulu, uh, Chekhov gets added in the second season, of course. It, it, it's just, it's such a comfortable cast. And, and the ways that those casts interact and the relationships they develop and, and, and how they, uh, how that, how they improve and deepen those relationships over the course of the series, especially a series that isn't very continuity heavy uh, in its original incarnation that yes, you might have some alien races reappearing here and there. And maybe one episode would be kind of a reference to something in the past, but generally speaking, you know, like most television at that time, you know, nothing was really, there was no binge watching. There was no recording. There was no like really means of, of truly like rewatching whatever you wanted that every episode what had to be its own individual thing because you know you had to really consider how much you know someone would remember week to week and what do people remember week to week they remember the great characters and sort of the, the, the general fun that they had and you know you might not be able to see your favorite episode again ever you you know you'd have to be lucky to catch it but you could always kind of revisit the characters and I think that's one of the Star Trek's the original series' greatest strength is in its characters. And I think that's also very interesting because, you know, one of the things, sort of the, one of the things we've discussed many times on this show is sort of the legacy of these series, but also what people remember them. If you remember to our Godzilla discussion that there is, you know, that Godzilla was defined by sort of sort of the Americanized versions, especially Megalon, which was kind of the big, you know, the biggest hit in America, quote unquote, but also the one that people recognize, oh, it's like silly monster movies. And I think one of the things about Trek is I think crazier plot elements definitely, you know, are remembered by people and for good reason, because they are very memorable. I think people, in my opinion, really underestimate sort of how much the cast and the characters bring to the show and how deep those characters actually are. Because again, I think that, you know, you have your thought, you know, when you say, you know, Captain Kirk, you have sort of that image of Shatner's overacting and his physicality and his, you know, womanizing ways, which also is funny because, you know, yeah, this is some of my favorite episodes that you really don't get that much womanizing from Shatner, but it does kind of really come up more in the third season. So, I can definitely understand that. You remember the, you know, Spock's and his fascinatings and his looks and and McCoy's like line like I'm I'm a I'm a doctor not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor not a therapist. You know all those sorts of lines. And it's just always funny that that's what people take and and then when you really revisit the series, you find that again these characters do have deep relationships. I mean, the core of the series from the series all the way through the movies, everything about that original series cast and the original series story is anchored in the relationship between James T. Kirk and, and Spock. I think the Kirk and Spock relationship is one of the best all-time duos pretty much in the in the history of, honestly, entertainment. Like, the, the, the chemistry 
that Kirk and Spock have, and by you know function the the chemistry that Shatner and Nimoy have, it's it's unbelievable, and and, and much of the best elements of the show and the best conversations that are had on the show are between these two characters in, in terms of both dramatic stuff, but also just fun. And I think that's also the thing about Trek. One of the things I've always loved about the original series is how it sets this tone for the franchise that it's not afraid to be very dramatic or very silly. And sometimes both at the same time. One episode i mean I, I what i want to do eventually in this i want to kind of talk about the characters but i do want to get into some of my favorite episodes and, and stuff that i again i would recommend to you folks but uh, one example that i have is this episode devil in the dark which starts off as kind of a monster of the week type of episode that they would sometimes do where there's this mining colony and there's this mysterious monster that's been killing the miners, and, and it's a very important colony to the Federation. So Kirk and Spock and, and the Enterprise are sent in to take a look at this um, monster and see if they can kill it or see if they can figure out what's going on. And Kirk and Spock are kind of having, there's this big debate about the episode where Kirk, you know, initially doesn't want any other people killed, so they want the monster killed on site, or he wants the monster killed on site. And then uh, Spock, on the other hand, sees that this uh, creature might be very unique. And, and, and as the science officer of the ship, tends to look at it as like, well, we need to study this. And there's this big debate. And, you know, earlier in the episode, they have this big kind of serious pseudoscience debate about whether it could be a silicon-based creature, the possibility of that. So they're going into this mining, this you know, kind of the mining caves, and they're going to get this big search party for the monster. And Kirk and McCoy, uh, I keep saying McCoy, Kirk and Spock are having this conversation and, and Kirk brings the conversation around that he wants to send Spock back to the Enterprise to help uh, Montgomery Scott with a project that is related to all this. And Spock says, no, like Scott, Mr. Scott knows so much more about that engineering stuff than I do. I would only be a burden. I want to help here. And then Kirk reveals well, the real reason is that, you know, one of us getting killed wouldn't, you know, wouldn't really matter to the ship, but both of us getting killed would. So I want to make sure that one of us is protected. And Spock comes back and says, sir, the probability of both of us being killed in this scenario are something like like 20,000 to one, like 200,000 to one, something like that. And Kirk's like, that much, huh? All right, we're both going. And it's just a sort of thing where it's like, and you have this very serious sort of you know very again dramatic element of again this monster and kind of searching for it and people being killed while also having this kind of fun conversation that really defines the relationship between two characters the characters just function so well together and it's incredible and and really like i didn't get into every single detail about like kind of the development of the series but one of the most striking things is how the as I kind of mentioned, though, that the Spock character really wasn't the way that it was in those early Roddenberry visions, that the character didn't really come to be until the necessities of sort of having to combine character elements for the second pilot. And Kirk didn't exist until that second pilot either, that the Captain Pike character was very different than Kirk. And it's just a testament to the the nature of writing. It's a testament to the writing 
process that you can kind of shift and change things on the fly and figure things out. And then, and even, I mean, the Star Trek is no better example of that. Not that the fact that like the third most important character in the series is definitely Dr. McCoy. Dr. McCoy is hilarious. He brings a deep friendship, you know, in his relationships with Kirk and Spock are so important. Dr. McCoy and Kirk have this deep friendship that goes back a while and he becomes kind of a trusted confidant to Kirk is Dr. McCoy. Then Dr. McCoy Hanna has this tenuous relationship with Spock where he doesn't necessarily love working with sort of Spock's personality that he always kind of pokes fun at it or pokes the bear with Spock that they, they kind of constantly argue McCoy will constantly challenge Spock. Spock will kind of constantly challenge McCoy the two of them also just have a relationship that strengthens each other. And McCoy has this great relationship with the audience. You know, he's sort of the audience surrogate for many of these weirder things. Like I mentioned that Devil in the Dark episode, McCoy is eventually called in to eventually save the creature. And McCoy takes one look at the creature and basically is like, what the hell is that? Like, as the audience would be. Or when Kirk kind of has a crazy plan, McCoy is the one where he's going to be bringing up the questions and like, are you, why are you doing this? This is crazy. And then Kirk kind of has to explain himself. So McCoy functions as part of that triumvirate. And really it's that triumvirate that, that forms the core of the series. But also, for example, uh, in terms of the development over time, Montgomery Scott, who same thing, like we, I didn't even mention this earlier, but, but, James Duhon was noted as sort of a, a early time voice actor. Like he didn't really do much of like the traditional voice acting as we know now, but he could definitely put on a different accent or a different voice depending on what the role called for. So when exploring the role with Roddenberry, they decided to kind of make this character Scottish to again just add to the palette of people on the bridge. But at the beginning of the series, Scott is very much a tangential character. He is the chief engineer, but basically would only really be used just when you needed a, a line or two of, of technical, you know, science mumbo jumbo to really kind of sell a danger or what was happening with the ship. But once we get into like the second half of season one, Scott becomes a very important character. He becomes the third in command when, when Spock and Kirk are off the ship. Because as the ship's engineer, of course, he would have the most knowledge of the ship and the ways that the ship works. And he kind of becomes a badass in and of himself. Uh, there are a couple episodes where he does get to be in control of the ship and he has to make the tough decisions. And he gets to have some fun with that. But also, again, gets to have a nice relationship with the way that he works with Kirk and the ship and and. and, and Scott Montgomery Scott becoming a character that will legitimately do anything to help the mission and will has such a knowledge of engineering and of the ship that he he's basically a genius on that end. It's just it's just incredible that the this the series really feels like on all angles when you look at its production, when you look at its history, it that it shouldn't work, that it should have been this obscure series from the 60s that maybe got a Shout Factory release, like a special, oh, we're finally putting on this weird, obscure 60s television series, like, you know, Shout Factory or just something that they would like, oh, well, we're going to put out this thing and it's very rare and, you know, it's like kind of this cult thing. 
And it's incredible that the series not only keeps up in terms of how those characters are related to each other, but also in terms of how those characters are still so enjoyable today. And I just kind of constantly go back to, because you have, I think, those four, you know, that Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Scott really kind of are the meat of the main cast. But then you do have the characters like Sulu, like Uhura, and Chekhov in that second season that really sort of bring it all together. And then you seeing these familiar faces on the ship um, just really brings together a cast that is so just memorable and, and comfortable to visit. And I think I, I, I rewatched much of the series, uh, much of like the series that I liked, and a, a few episodes that I had not remembered very well. Uh, in preparation for this kind of solo episode. And it's just fun when you get to see these characters just together. And most of the like mo- most of the episodes too, even the more dramatic ones, you know, some, not all the dramatic ones, but even some of the more dramatic ones would end all with a little scene of comedy between Kirk, McCoy, and Spock and just their banter back and forth. Uh, again, I go back to Devil in the Dark. It's an episode that I really love. But the end of that episode, after this whole big, you know, dramatic thing about thinking this creature is bad and then trying to save it. And I want to save that a little bit more for episode discussion specifics because I want to tell you what I love about that episode. But the very end of that episode is a little bit about how Spock's mind meld with the Horta, which is the creature, revealed a lot to him that the the guy at the base, the guy at the mining base basically says, oh, like the Horde is not so bad once you get used to it, like once you get to, used to looking at it. And then Spock says, oh, the Horde has said that to me when I felt that in his thoughts. You know, it could get used to humans when looking at it. Uh, and then he basically reveals that her fa- the Horde's favorite thing about humans was the pointed ears, and I didn't have the heart to tell her that that was just me. And then Kirk and Spock just kind of go, they really like the pointed ears? Like, it really liked the ears? And... And Fox is like, well, the Horda tends to have a very intelligent creature with great taste. And just sort of that little banter is so just really just makes it fun to watch. And, and you get that sometimes throughout episodes. And and, and again, the, 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 they're, I'm sorry if I'm rambling here. This is kind of what the point of this sort of thing is, is I just love how much just fun it is to watch the series. It really is just fun to kind of encounter these characters. And, and, and it's a testament, I haven't even mentioned this, the performances, the performances of these characters. Like, yes, Shatner is the master of the overacting. Like, he's a master of the scene shootery. But that's what makes Kirk Kirk. Shatner has such a presence as Kirk and Mason such a believable leader of people. He always sells the tough decisions. He plays the comedy super well when he needs to play it. He presents Kirk as someone who will take the risks to save everybody, knowing that this could be the end. It has many reflections on those tough decisions and what they mean for the crew and what they mean for Spock and what they mean for McCoy and what they mean for him. Uh, I mean... Leonard Nimoy's Spock is one of the most legendary characters in television history, and, and honestly, one of the most iconic characters ever. Like you could place him in the kind of top five. When people think of Spock, they have a very specific image, even more so than the rest of the cast. And, and, and Nimoy 
you know, adds so much to the character. Like his performance of sort of the emotionlessness, the stoicness of Spock, but also using that to allow for the drama and allow for the emotion of the character. And it really, really makes it home when that character does have his emotions as sort of this half-human, half-Vulcan character. Especially when, you know, and just like with the rest of the, the series, the Vulcan culture really wasn't much when the series first started, but, but, but um, Nimoy as Spock really digs into those episodes like Devil in the Dark where he gets his first mind meld or like a muck time when he has sort of this ancient Vulcan uh, ceremony and this ancient Vulcan sort of feeling that he has to come back to and stuff like that. Uh, and another one where he, you know, feels 400 Vulcans die in an instant, has his kind of Obi-Wan moment, and sort of the the emotions that he's kind of taking in, where he's still this stoic, logical man, but he has to kind of deal with the fact that a large number of his race were just killed in an instant by a mysterious part of space. Like, all of it just comes together in that performance, and not to mention um, DeForest Kelly as uh, Dr. McCoy, it just sells both of those relationships again with, as I mentioned with Kirk and Spock and just, you know, is the one with the quip all the time. And, you know, Kirk will get his quips, Spock will get his quips and, and Spock's quips are hysterical when you really consider again, his stoic ways. And Spock is, is a, is savage. Like he, he is the most savage, but McCoy just has that brash and he uses that, you know, that kind of Southern esque charm that, you know, the forest Kelly brings to the role is just so much fun. And when those characters are integrated with such fun and unique sci-fi plots, like that's really also what makes Star Trek for me, at least especially when you're looking at other stuff of this era, is they the best of those episodes have such unique and interesting plot lines. And there was just so much creativity with how you could use the characters, how you could use the world of Star Trek. And again, there was very much a blank slate especially with sort of the not real continuity heaviness that, you know, you could just, people could pitch ideas for just weirdo planets. You know, like there's a planet, there's an episode Shore Leave where it's a planet where whatever you think of suddenly comes to life. So like McCoy at the beginning of the episode, he starts comparing it to like, it's like something out of Alice through the looking glass. It's like something out of Alice in Wonderland. And like all of a sudden McCoy sees the white rabbit and Alice chasing after it. And then, like, Sulu was just thinking about how there was, like, this old antique gun from, like, you know, the 1800s America that he was wishing he he had. Like, something that was just daydreaming. And he finds that gun somewhere. And Kirk thinks about this old rival he had at the Academy that constantly, like, pranked him. And uh, another man thinks about a tiger. And another another person thinks about uh, a World War II fighter jet. Like, just weird stuff kind of happens. You can kind of be silly and crazy and dumb but you can also have episodes where, like, there's a taste of Armageddon, where uh, the whole concept is these two planets are have been at war for 500 years, and the way they've made that work is that they kind of simulate where the bombs go off, and then they have to kill, like, oh, it said, oh, this this bomb killed 20,000 people, so you have to kind of kill 20,000 people without 24 hours, or, or not that much, but something like that. I just feel like every time that I kind of even rediscover or discover a new episode that there's just so much creativity and imagination 
and uniqueness to the way they tell these stories. And even in the, like stuff like, you know, I remember our friend of the podcast, Patrick, one of the, I've showed him trouble with tribbles before, which is one of the series, most famous episodes. And one thing he commented to me about it. And I remember this is that he was really happy that the show didn't go in the way that he expected that he kind of had a preconceived notion about like what the, how everything would kind of come together and the way that it does come together, how the Tribble storyline and, and the Grain storyline and the Klingon storyline and how it all comes together, comes together in a pretty unexpected way at the end of the day. Like I said, like you can debate whether or not Roddenberry was correct in the ways in which he took over writer's scripts and rewrote them or handed it off to DC Fontana or handed it off to other people and there's a big debate. I mean, it still goes on to this day about sort of those writers' rights and what they mean. But Roddenberry, especially in those first two seasons when he was always around, basically kept the show pretty consistent and kept the quality of the show decently consistent, notwithstanding episodes that haven't aged well and, and, and some, of the, some of the kind of weaker episodes of those first two seasons. Well, I guess now, I mean, I've kind of hinted at this now, um, but... It is stand to say, sort of talk about some of my favorite episodes of the series and sort of how they they relate to me, but also how they could relate to you if you are interested in going beyond what we're going to be talking about in the films and, and, and looking to look at some episodes of the series in and of itself. And they're really, honestly, not, not a bad place to start is that second pilot, which is the where no man has gone before. Yes, again, it doesn't feature the entire cast and sort of things aren't really kind of set in stone just yet in terms of what the series really, the true potential of the series. But what's great about where No Man Has Gone Before is it is kind of a strong introduction to at least that core Spock and Kirk relationship. It opens up the first scene of the series is, is the two of them kind of playing the, the, the famous three-dimensional chess and, and kind of having this conversation. And immediately you get like, Spock thinking that one of Kirk's moves is illogical and that like later he says like he should have moved the rook and, and, and you get to immediately see sort of again the uniqueness of the series and and it is interesting to kind of see it in that very early era like everything like the costumes and kind of the the design it, it is so sort of primordial and still so ripe to be changed but it really isn't a bad place to start of just kind of getting the very much the basis of how the original series works i do feel though that really and there's good episodes in the first half of that first season in the kind of that initial 13 to 16 episode order of the series but the series really does find its voice like kind of halfway through season one and where i kind of really fall in love with the series is the 14th episode of the original series which is balance of terror Balance of Terror may be, I mean, I, I would say it's definitely in my top three of the series for sure. But I would also say it's it's genuinely one of the best television episodes from that era that I've seen, at least from a dramatic standpoint. The, the, the Balance of Terror is an episode where it starts off kind of with the, the kind of again seeing sort of the minutia of the ship but i also really love when they kind of show some of the more day-to-day -day stuff of the ship where two where, where kirk's about to marry two of the officers uh two of the uh crew members on the ship when they sort of have an emergency situation in a finding a space station uh, federation space station has been destroyed and they eventually find out that the most likely culprit of this 
are the Romulans, this mysterious race of alien beings that they had a war with years ago and have established the famous neutral zone between the Romulan Empire and Federation space. And there's there's suspicions that the Romulans have crossed over from the, from their side of the neutral zone, destroyed these spaceships, and are preparing to have another war with the Federation. And at first it becomes, and, and there's this whole thing where, you know, again, we get some of the lore of the series where Spock, you know, relates the history of the neutral zone and, and the instructions of the Federation to not cross the neutral zone. And Kirk has to, has to struggle with, if we find this ship, like, you know, do we let them go? Or do we attack and they can't contact the Federation for advice and so it's up to Kirk. And, and really, one of the things I love about Balance of Terror is just showcasing Kirk as a leader, as a captain, and as a man who deeply considers his decisions and deeply considers how his decisions will affect the crew, the Federation, and his friends in, in terms of how it affects Spock and McCoy and, and himself. Eventually, they're able to hack into... Oh, I should mention as well, by the way, that uh, one of the crew members on the bridge at this point, his family was mostly killed off by the Romulans during that original Romulan Federation war. And so he has this grudge about what happened with that and wants to, you know, of course, destroy the Romulans out of pure rage. So eventually, you know, the the ship, the, the Romulan ship is discovered to have a cloaking device and they're able to hack into the video screen, the view screen for the Romulan ship where it's revealed that the Romulans look exactly like the Vulcans, that they have the pointed ears and the sort of the same style. So obviously the crew member is kind of a, you know, becomes a sort of thing on bigotry where the crew member sort of suspects Spock uh, uh, of, you know, being, is he on the side of the Romulans and stuff? And it's that, that sort of stuff. It's funny because it's sort of a, a big part, but also a small part about what makes the episode great. And it, it, Kirk has a really just great small line like the, the it, it's kind of not made like too it's a big deal of the episode but also not too huge of a deal which i really like but kirk has a great line of just like he basically shuts the guy down when he's a cute when he's like looking at spock and just like staring at him because they they've now know that the romulans and and the vulcans look like each other and kirk just goes up to the guy it's like there's no room for bigotry on my bridge so if you if you have any of those feelings get the hell out and then the guy's like no sir and so he still kind of has this grudge but but Kirk immediately shuts down like, no, dude, like there's bigger fish to fry here. So there, again, there's the big debate about what to do. And, and, and then, you know, again, there's accusations. There's a big boardroom meeting. And Spock eventually says, you know, we should attack that these might have been Vulcans that, you know, left the planet early in our history. And if they are anything like the early Vulcans, that they are ruthless and they are going to see that us letting them go is weakness and we'll start another war. And then what's really great about Balance of Terror is we get to see both sides of this conflict. That yes, we follow Kirk and Kirk's decisions and Kirk's logic about how to approach the ship. But we also get into the Romulan ship and we see the Romulan perspective and the main Romulan, who's unnamed but is played by Mark Leonard, who would eventually go on to play another role in the series that I really love. Uh, and has more of his legacy. But we see, you know, he's weary of all this sort of fighting and, 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 and sort of the sneak attack and the war 
and and the warrior kind of culture that his race has, the ruthlessness that his race has, and there's a tiredness of him while also having to kind of deal with what Kirk is doing and sort of the two, it goes back and forth between the two and showcases how they are trying to outwit each other. And it really is something really interesting and fascinating when you get to see, obviously, our, the heroes that we kind of know, the Kirk and Spock in their debates, but also going on to how the Romulans view this ship, how the Romulans view this mysterious captain that they don't know what he looks like or they don't know what he's doing, and sort of the cat and mouse game and the shared connection that we have between the Romulans and Kirk and the crew of the Enterprise, as well as sort of a deeper look at this mysterious alien race that we do get to see their issues and their you know, personal gripes with themselves. And it just relates to such a fascinating, it's, it's literally like sort of like a, uh, it's been compared this many times, like a submarine movie in space. It's just sort of the two submarine captains trying to outwit each other. You know, Kirk saying like, Oh, he expects this. So I'm going to do that. And then the Romulan leader would be like, uh, he's expecting that I'm expecting this. So I'm going to do that. And then it's just sort of the, it's just so brilliantly written. So dramatic. And it really just showcases just how deep these characters are. That you do have Spock reckoning with the fact that, you know, he is going after someone that does look like his race and may share an ancestry. Then Kirk trying to, again, do what's best, try to figure out, you know, originally debating, is it best to attack him? Is it best to keep the neutrality? And then the Romulans and their own issues. It's just a great little thing where... It's just so full of depth, and you really get the sense of who all these characters are. So I feel like the series after that really gets to, you know, a great rhythm in that second half of the series. And I mean, there's great episodes in the first half. I mentioned Where No Man Has Gone Before. Uh, the Naked Time is very fun. Uh, the Corbomite Maneuver is one of the earlier episodes of the series that does have, a, you know, is, is pretty famous. Uh, but the next episode I do want to mention is one I just mentioned before. Devil in the Dark. I've, I've used it as many of examples, so I don't want to talk about it too much, but the emotion of that episode is absolutely incredible because really like the Horta is this sort of molten rock creature that's really like cheesy, like a cheesy costume of like a big rock slug that just kind of looks like fabric. Like it does. It looks like a fabric costume. But the emotion they give the character is absolutely incredible because as I uh, mentioned too, originally it's Kirk that wants to kill the creature and Spock that wants to keep it alive. But then soon the roles are reversed when they split up and they have their communicators. Kirk eventually, you know, gets trapped with like a rock slide and then sees the creature come through, but realizes quickly that the creature is not attacking him. So the creature isn't actually dangerous. Meanwhile, Spock has become so concerned about the captain and with the rock slide that when Kirk tells him that the monster's there, he says, kill it. He just says, kill it, get rid of it. Like, we, we can't afford to lose you. But, but now Kirk is on that side of like, no, wait, this creature, there's something else going on here. So eventually when Spock comes in, Spock, this is the first time that Spock reveals about the Vulcan mind meld. This scene is one of the best scenes of the show. Spock goes full mind meld on this creature and exhibits this emotion that we had, A, never seen Spock see before, 
but really allows us into the mind of this silly looking creature. That this creature is in pain, that this creature is in dying, that the miners have killed, unknowingly, but killed many of her children and many of the eggs that her children will hatch out of. And just the performance of Nimoy here, I can't, I can't overstate it enough. I, I, I feel like I'm going to continually understate it because it's hard to really capture unless you watch the episode. But the emotion and the performance of Nimoy here when he's mind-melding with this creature to give you an emotional attachment to this creature, to give you the creature's pain and suffering and the fact that it's dying, it's just incredible. It's an incredible sequence of events. And then it gets another great moment. Like Devil in the Dark is a great episode for all of the characters. Because it really showcases Kirk's ingenuity and his hardness in terms of, you know, eventually has to stop all the rest of the miners from, from killing it. Like, it, his, just, his ability as leadership is just showcased here. We get a deeper understanding of the Vulcan race and a deeper appreciation of how Spock views the world and how Vulcans can view the world. And then you also have this, this part with McCoy where McCoy is called down by Kirk saying there's been an injury. And then when Dr. McCoy comes down, he sees it's this creature and Kirk explains like, listen, this creature is dying and you need to help it. And then of course you get uh, McCoy saying like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a surgeon, not a bricklayer. Kirk's like, you're a healer, go heal. And he basically is saying like, you're the best that I know at this. I trust you to do it. And McCoy goes in and has no idea of, you know, like what this creature's like internal organs are like or how it actually functions, but figures enough out where he gets essentially sort of concrete from the ship and basically lays it over like a Band-Aid to the point where he has this great line where he says, I feel like I could cure a rainy day. But it showcases, Devil in the Dark showcases great character moments for all three of those main characters, like I said. And, and with McCoy, it just showcases his dedication to saving a life, no matter the creature, no matter the situation, no matter the struggle that he'll have to do it. It's just an incredible piece of character work for all three characters and an incredible piece of character work for the Horta, the creature itself, that you fully understand this silly looking creature as intelligent and as having emotion, despite all that emotion coming from Spock. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Another care, another one then from that first season that I just have to mention. I mean, and it's a, it's an episode that everybody mentions when it comes to the original series. And that is the city on the edge of forever. Everything about this episode is just iconic. The guardian, the time travel, Kirk's relationship with, Edith Keeler. So again, the, the the point of this episode is there the Enterprise is investigating ripples in time over this planet. And during like kind of a crash due to like sort of a, a ripple sort of shakes the ship in that classic Star Trek way, Sulu gets hurt. And McCoy comes up and, and injects sort of this drug into him, this kind of this kind of uh, you know medicine into him that that Kirk mentions is very potent. And could be, you know, could be a risk. But then, you know, obviously McCoy knows what he's doing and saves Sulu's life. But during another sort of shaking of the ship, 
McCoy accidentally ingests all of the, accidentally, you know, stabs himself with the needle and gets all of the, the entire rest of the dose. And basically starts going crazy and starts screaming, murderers and assassins are after him. And escapes down to the planet's surface. So they have to go find him. They don't know where, like, if this is permanent, if they can, like, you know, detox him, whatever. But then when they go down to the planet, they find this portal, this, this sentient portal of time called the Guardian. And the Guardian offers them this ability to see all of history, all of their history, all of human history. That it has this ability to basically go through the history of any planet's life. And during this, McCoy kind of runs it at a random time, and they figure out, and the Guardian lets him know as much, that McCoy has accidentally changed time in some way where the Enterprise doesn't exist anymore. Spock and Kirk decide that the only way to win is they have to go back in time as well, and they figure out, thanks to a recording on Spock's time, uh, on Spock's tricorder, that he went around sometime in the 1930s, that they try to match up and find McCoy in the past and fix whatever he, uh, you know, accidentally changed. But they find that they're there before McCoy, or maybe they're there after. Like they don't know when in relation to there with McCoy is. So they get to the 1920s. They eventually find their way to sort of a homeless uh, soup shelter and help out there and meet a woman named Edith Keeler. And Edith Keeler is kind of this shining brightly woman who basically wraps her her positivity around everybody. Kirk immediately is infatuated at her, and even Spock sort of has this this kind of even a detachment, but sort of has an appreciation for her, uh, and and her helping out. And so, the eventual reveal is that uh, you know Spock uses like takes a week or so to use nineteen twenties nineteen thirties technology to build kind of a computer, and finds two possibilities: that she either has to live to meet with the president, or she dies in nineteen thirty in the year that they're in due to a car accident. And eventually it is revealed that if Edith Keeler lives, she convinces uh, FDR to not go into World War II. The Germans develop the H-bomb first and basically destroy and take over the world. And there's just this, a great moment in sci-fi history where Kirk looks off into the distance and says, I think I'm in love with Edith Keeler. And then Spock goes, Jim, Edith Keeler must die. And... It's such a, again, a unique way of doing a kind of a time travel episode and this debate of like, you know, Kirk knows for the good of humanity and for the good of the world and and for his ability to continue on in existence that he has to let this woman die, but he cares too much about her and even like she's about to fall down the stairs and he accidentally kind of saves her. And then of course McCoy appears and also becomes infatuated with her and his presence there is again now he originally saved her from being hit by the car but now you know Kirk has to hold him back to make sure Edith Keeler gets hit by that car and dies and it's just the way that the story moves and functions is just so beautiful and again performance wise by Shatner and performance wise by Nimoy and even Edith Keeler performer is just again you can you fall kind of fall in love with her yourself and again, another great line from this episode is when, when McCoy is shocked that Kirk stopped him and he says, do you know what you just did? I could have saved her. Do you know what you just did? Shatner just walks off uh, and, and allows Kirk to kind of have a moment to himself. And then Nimoy as Spock basically is like, he knows, doctor. He knows. And even the last line of the episode where, you know, they go back and the Guardians offers them like many more adventures can be had like this. I can let you, I can let you explore history as much as you want. Uhura's down there and he's, he's like, the Enterprise is hailing us and wants to know if we want to beam up. 
Kirk just looks off and says, let's get the hell out of here. It's perfect. It's just, it's another perfect episode of television. And it, it, it's something that if you were ever going to watch an episode of Star Trek, like if you were just had to pick one, that one wouldn't be a bad choice. Um, even if it doesn't really showcase the whole ship. And, and again, is kind of the time travel episode, which they did a number of times to kind of save budgets. It is just incredible work. And even with the editing of Harlan Ellison's, like that script that Ron Berry and DC Fontana put together, it's just perfection. Uh, I've been going on for a while now about talking about these episodes. And I do want to mention a couple more, um, but I will try to kind of, you know, I always say I'm going to keep a brief and I never keep a brief. So if there's one episode that I think really defines, just like with Devil in the Dark, another episode that really defines going into the character lore a lot more that I love. And I would easily put this in my top five for sure of all the ones we've mentioned so far. Journey to Babel. Uh, Mark Leonard, as we mentioned in Balance of Terror, does return to the series in this episode as Spock's father, Sarek. And the whole thing about this episode is that the Enterprise is tasked to uh, move a bunch of dignitaries to this large meeting that will determine sort of whether or not like the Federation kind of puts their hands into this mining operation. Then again, there's there's parts that want to keep the mining operation neutral so that they can have more control over it, and parts that want the Federation to get there to get protections for the people of this mining operation, of this planet. And one of the dignitaries is Spock's father, Sarek. And of course he brings his wife, uh, Amanda, with him, his human you know, the human wife and the and the Vulcan father. And it digs into the relationship drama between Spock and his father. Spock's father wanted him to stay with Vulcan and join the Vulcan Science Academy and continue the work that he had been doing. Spock instead decides to go join Starfleet as a science officer. And there's just a big disconnect. And I just love that Trek can have an episode that deals with the fam- like a family dynamic like this. And eventually like Spock is in a situation where Kirk has kind of been possibly poisoned by you know a mysterious killer on the ship they find a dead body spock is kind of in facto charge of the ship but also his father is having a heart condition that is basically possibly going to kill him unless he kind of gets a blood transfusion so spock kind of has to balance out where it's like his instinct is to continue running the ship because you know it's like the greater good and everything like that whereas the arguments are like Spock it's your father like you have to save your father and Spock and Sarek sort of making up and and sort of showcasing sort of a more understanding of each other Spock's mother Amanda is a fantastic character I love this sort of conversation there's this great conversation that she and Kirk have about the relationship between Sarek and Spock and sort of this the both of them sort of digging into the uh, the Vulcan way of life and that she does love him, but there's some frustrations with it. Uh, and it's an episode that presents this family drama and Spock needing to kind of reconcile with his father and save his father's life while also dealing with a political murder mystery at the same time and brilliantly balanced. And then again, there's a lot more details that I think are more fun for this specific episode if you watch it, but just the relationship dynamics between and even Kirk Kirk waking up and like knowing that like yes he's not in the best condition because you know he's been kind of there was an attempt on his life but knowing that no he needs to push Spock 
into saving this father's life. And there's amazing comedy at the end too. There's a great scene where McCoy talks to Spock's mother about like trying to get any information about Spock. Like, Oh, did he have any pets when he was a kid? And basically like, Oh, she he basically had this one creature that was like a Vulcan teddy bear. And McCoy is just so jazzed about it and can't wait to like make fun of Spock about it. But then Spock basically like it has is like it would be like a teddy bear if a teddy bear had like ten inch long fangs and like just walks off. It's just so much just again, this a mixture of so much there's so much going on in that episode. But really you get the deeper explanation again, another deep explanation of Spock, and you get to see that through the rest of the character's eyes. But now really, guys, it's time to talk about what may be not just the greatest episode of Star Trek, the original series. What might possibly be one of the greatest episodes in the history of science fiction, nay, television history? And I'm talking about The Trouble with Tribbles. I've mentioned before that one of the things I like about the Star Trek, the original series, and really the Star Trek series in general, is its variety and its unafraidedness. It's not a word, but how it's unafraid to go into different ideas tones, genres even. The Trouble with Tribbles is a pure comedy front to back. And it's hysterical. It's incredibly well written. The performances are so funny. It adds lore. It, it, it deepens sort of the relationship with the Klingons, which had been introduced uh, at towards the end of season one. Everything about this episode, I don't even know how to begin with this episode. The Trouble with Tribbles is just incredible work. Everything is just... Starting off with Shatner's performance. Shatner, as Kirk here, is continually more and more frustrated as the episode goes on. He starts off, they they go into the big history of, like, the Sherman's planet and, like, the war that is kind of the, the Cold War is being had over this planet between the Klingons and the Federation. They get an emergency, like, disaster call from this space station that surrounds the planet right now that's on Federation space. They go in and basically there's no emergency and Kirk is already annoyed and basically the guy there is like, this is the only, Qualitritikaline, it's the only grain that can grow on Sherman's planet. If we can plant it, we get the planet basically and we need you to protect it. And Kirk is immediately annoyed. He gets continually more annoyed with this dude and then the Klingons show up and he has to deal with the Klingons and then the Tribbles, which are these small little kind of football creatures who have basically, as McCoy puts it, are born pregnant and continually reproduce they're bisexual they will produce with anybody anybody in the race and just produce like litters of 10 then he has like the continued frustration of kirk throughout this episode kirk gets so many great lines i i think like one of them is like when he's talking to the dude that's like annoying him about getting these guards on the grain (laughs) he's like i have great respect for uh this plan and uh this issue just no respect for you and like just immediately turns and just him like getting constantly called. It's like, this thing is flowing with Klingons. I have guards around the Klingons. I have guards around the grain. And in terms of your uh, complaints, he looks, he just looks at Spock, which is this contempt of like what's going on. It has been noted in law, Kirk out. And, you know, he's going to get headache medicine from... <laughs> Uh, McCoy and McCoy is trying to explain about the Tribbles and and like just open a maternity ward. Then the Tribbles are all around the bridge, and uh, it's a great moment too, where Kirk is getting his food, and there's just 
you just see tribbles just everywhere like every table every all the floor on the walls like everywhere there's just tribbles and he goes to get his food and he just looks and there's tribbles in his food he's like this is my chicken sandwich and coffee this is my chicken sandwich and coffee and spock just looks off as like fascinating and then just the, the response is like I want these off the ship. I don't care if it takes every man we got. It's just at that point, he's a broken man that he just wants all this fixed. And the buildup to that frustration, I can't, I can't say enough is amazing. Meanwhile, you also have sort of the tensions between the Klingons and the Federation and then, then the enterprise and sort of all they're all on shorely together as part of this kind of peace offering to kind of keep everything down. Kirk sends Scotty down to, basically keep an eye on everybody and the Klingons are constantly hurling insults at Kirk and calling him like a slime devil and saying he's not soft he's like he's like a delusions of grandeur and he's a he's he's with false thoughts about godhood and Chekhov wants to really beat up these Klingons and start a fight and defend their captain but Scotty is like no like this is not worth it like you know it's like we we, we can take a few insults and then the Klingons start <laughs> They start making fun of the Enterprise of the ship and call it a garbage skull and it should be hauled in garbage or be hauled away as garbage. And immediately Scotty starts a barroom fight over it. And there's this great, again, a great barroom fight. And the guy who originally sells the triple Cyrano Jones, there's this great bit where he's trying to steal a drink from the bar and, and go around all the fighting, just purely perfectly timed. And then we get to just this fantastic moment, which really digs into Scotty as a character. Even Scotty gets to have some of these character moments where he's embarrassed to tell Captain Kirk that he started the fight over the ship, not the captain insults. And whereas Kirk is so flabbergasted about the sequence of events that like, first of all, you started the fight, Scotty. Oh, so it was over my, you know, after they insulted me, you started the fight. No, oh, like after, but then Scotty gets back into it. It's like, it's a matter of pride, sir. They can't talk about the Enterprise like that. And then even like when Kirk sends them off to quarters to like, you know, stay to quarters until further notice, like, thank you, sir. I can keep up with my technical journals. And just Scotty being so infatuated with, the technical side and his love for engineering uh just the trouble with tribbles and then again like as as i mentioned that patrick said like it goes into a completely different direction than you think it's gonna go in terms of the final reveal and what the what the whole kind of how all things wrap up but it's genuinely speaking an amazing episode of television not just an amazing episode of star trek not just an amazing episode of sci-fi television but just television in general it's just so much fun it's so much fun I love it. Uh, the last of these main episodes, I, I'm going to mention a few in terms of just general other ones that I like. But of this kind of these these episodes that I really wanted to talk about more in detail is a piece of the action. So in many ways, again, especially during that second season, the Star Trek show struggled with budget, right? They weren't really a highly successful show. And they were a sci-fi show. So first of all, they weren't successful enough to get like these big budgets. But yet they were a show that had to kind of build planets and had to build starship corridors and everything like that. So there was a thing, especially in that second season and third season, where one of the ways they would address this is to send them to planets that had familiar sort of costumes 
Like down the line, there's like an episode where, you know, they go to a planet that's modeled themselves off their Nazi Germany, which actually isn't that great of an episode. Or later they do, uh, they go to the Romans, a Roman planet, which actually is kind of interesting. It's not my favorite episode either, but they kind of actually combine Roman culture with kind of a satire on television production, which actually kind of makes it a little bit interesting. There's also this incredibly incredibly so bad it's good episode the omega glory which is actually one of the considered episodes for the new pilot and thank god this wasn't where the big reveal at the end it was like oh it's a planet that mirrored earth to the point where they have their own like u.s constitution on the planet like word for word in the same print it's so bad it's it's so bad it's good it's an incredibly like dumb episode but none of them compare to a piece of the action and the piece of the action is an episode where Kirk and the Enterprise are sent to this planet that they just found out was visited by another early generation starship like hundreds of years ago. And they need to check out the planet to see if there's been any interference because there's the the we get the first hint of what is called the Prime Directed which plays a larger role in sort of the next generation era of Star Trek. But what it basically the idea is is like if it's a developing planet that is not at a point of like starships yet, that we we want to let them naturally uh, naturally kind of uh, pick up their own culture and and create their own society without us interfering and introducing technology. So they go down to this planet and find out that it looks and acts exactly like 1920s Chicago, and in terms of most specifically the mobs, the Al Capone types of 1920s Chicago. And then they eventually realized that the old ship uh, left a book that was written in 1992. (laughs) Always love when they specify years uh, of Chicago mobs in the 1920s. And that the culture is very, uh, the culture of this planet is very imitative. So they basically used this book as a Bible and modeled themselves after these Chicago mobs. And it's this whole episode where Kirk and McCoy and Spock are on this planet and they're kind of going between these all these different mob bosses and factions. And it's such a good time to see Spock and McCoy. Like, Spock has to react to just the illogicalness of all this. Kirk slowly figures out that he just needs to get more and more into the role of a mobster to the point where at the end he's chewing the scenery and like doing his biggest Chicago accent. And it's, I can get why people don't really love it. It's amazing. There's a point where they basically steal the clothes of two of the guys. And so it's Kirk and Spock in suits and fedoras with Tommy guns. And it's just an incredible visual. There's a great scene where Spock and Kirk have to work together to find out how a car works. Like that's just them trying to figure out like how to start the car, how to how to get it going forward. And then they they Kirk drives around the city, starts going in reverse and accidentally and then at the end when they get to their destination, Spock's like you're captain, you're you're brilliant leader of a starship. You're an awful taxi driver and just like that bad, huh? I was like, "Yes." And then again, just sort of this great little scene where afterwards they're trying to sneak into this other mob boss's house. And this kid comes up to them, like this like 10-year-old kid. He's like, I'll help you get in there. And like, what do you want? A piece of the action, as this episode said. And Spock's reveals, you don't even know what a piece of the action would be. 
And he's just a kid's like, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's something big. And then they're like, that's logical. Like, it's just crazy stuff like that. But then it's just at the end, Kirk is just chewing up the scenery. He's trying to keep character with Spock. And he's trying to basically hint at, like, Spock, like, go along with me. And it's like, yes. And then he's like, right. And then he's also trying to keep character with Scotty and trying to speak in code to Scotty about basically transporting one of the mob bosses up to show him, like, hey, we we mean business. And and Scotty trying to figure out exactly what, what, what Kirk means and, like, trying to decipher all of Kirk's, like, nonsense 1920s-style talking. It's just a brilliant episode. And again, just like with triples, it just showcases that the series is not afraid to get silly and fit stupid and brilliantly use it to its advantage. I could really sit here all day and talk about like all these great episodes from the original series, especially in those seasons one and two. And I really don't want to spend here all talking about all day. I think I've, I've made laid out my points pretty well in these deeper analysis that I've had. But there are a couple episodes I do want to quickly mention uh, of other ones that I really enjoy. Uh, the the Corbrandt Maneuver, I mentioned it briefly a little bit earlier. It's a famous episode from earlier in the series. Uh, it has a great sort of story where Kirk and the Enterprise basically have to make up bullshit to get out of their way of being killed by this mysterious alien creature. Uh, the Squire of Gothos I really enjoy too. It's one of the best episodes of Kirk going up against a godlike creature and has a fantastic twist ending. It's one of the best twist endings of the series. Uh, a Taste of Armageddon I also mentioned earlier in this episode. Uh, I just love, again, the uniqueness of sort of this interplanetary war where like no destruction happens and sort of Kirk and Spock rallying to stop these people from willingly going to, to the suicide booths and sort of really showing this culture the horrors of war there's a great moment where Kirk basically uh, you know goes up against the leader of the planet Scotty has some really badass moments as acting captain of the ship and Spock gets to put out a guard by telling him there's a slug on his shoulder and then kind of punching him that one's really fun uh, mirror mirror is you know the mirror universe the dark universe where we learn that you know evil people have goatees but it's actually sort of a very interesting reflection on Kirk adapting to that mirror universe to try to escape and and, and planning with the others that made it to the universe to try and find a way home uh, but it's a very kind of interesting reflection on Kirk's character and how he's able to adapt to those situations um, the Mutity Syndrome is also very fun. It's an episode where there's a giant space amoeba that, you know, Spock feels has killed 400 Vulcans. The amoeba drains energy from ships and from people and slowly kills them, slowly kills the ship. And it's a great Spock and McCoy episode. There's a lot of great interactions with them. And eventually when one of them has to kind of make this, you know, perceived suicide mission to figure out how to get into the space amoeba, you know, Kirk and, and uh, Kirk has to listen to McCoy and Spock, you know, give their own points of view and sort of argue with each other about which one of them is better suited for it and actually gets really into their relationship pretty well. I should also mention, of course, there's the famous episode from season three, Plato's Stepchildren, which features the famous kiss between Kirk and Uhura. While not technically the first interracial kiss on television, it's probably the most famous and the most notable. And actually, surprisingly to many on the crew, gained got a lot of uh, positive letters. They thought they were going to get really slammed for that, uh, for that risk, but they actually got a lot of positive feedback for this episode. And there's a lot of others that I really like as well. You know, to really be honest about season three, I really am not a huge fan of much of the stuff I've seen from season three. I haven't really gone through all of it. I've gone through some of the ones that people really like, and I do think that there are some, a few choice episodes. Uh, the Enterprise is probably the most notable 
of all the season three episodes, which makes sense because it is written by DC Fontana, who also wrote, by the way, Journey into Babel, had her hand in about 10 episodes of Trek, and she's a fantastic writer for the series. And uh, the Thrillian Web, also very notable, but also is notable for some of its, like the series' worst episodes, like the, the series finale, quote-unquote, Turnabout Intruder, is pretty bad. Let That Be Your Last Battlefield is a very controversial episode. You might know it as the one with the two uh, warring alien races that both have the half-black, half-white faces, and they kind of fight over it. It's a very heavy-handed allegory about racism and and intolerance, which it's better done in stuff like um, Balance of Terror, uh, but still has some fun stuff in there. But, you know, I think season one and two, especially like the second half of season one and pretty much all of season two with a few exceptions, I think are very, very, very good episodes. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I hope that that wasn't too much of all over the place for you guys. I, 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 I had a lot of fun time sort of digging deep into the show, into its history, uh, and sort of giving you a preview of what's to come with our discussion of the Star Trek series. And I think, again, it was important to kind of delve into this stuff now uh, because there is a large gap between the series canceled in 1969 and the the movie eventually coming out in 1979. And there's a big journey to that. And we'll definitely go over that entire journey. But it's important to see where this all started. And, and the stuff that I love about those movies really does have its origins in how well, despite the show's not big success for its time period, what the show sets up in terms of, again, the world and its characters is only expanded upon going forward. And it's those core character relationships that keep that original series alive to the point where we do have, you know, the next generation having their own character dynamics and then the, the further spinoffs of Voyager and Deep Space Nine and everything like that. Like everything starts with the original series. And I think it's totally a series that I hold dear, even if I've discovered it and, and really got into it not too long ago, relatively speaking around 2018. I definitely recommend checking out some of those best episodes. Like I honestly, you can take my recommendations but I would recommend just like if you, even if you go on the main Wikipedia page for the original series and just go down to top ranked episodes, they just have like four different lists from different eras of what the best episodes of the series are. And that's how I really started with the original series is I kind of just took the best episodes that everybody loved and I kind of just kind of went up and down and, and just sort of fell in love with the characters. And then from there, I was able to kind of explore some of those other episodes that aren't on that list. Like, I mean, I knew about piece of the action, but you know, that's usually not in everybody's top 10 for, for various reasons. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's basically, that's what I have to say about Star Trek, the original series. I love the characters. I love the, the classic nature. It's a very comfortable show. And if you, the, the highs are so high and yes, the lows are pretty low or the things that don't work now don't work now. But the, the highs of the show, I think are still incredibly fun episodes of television that still hold up to this day. And I think that's going to about do it. I do hope you enjoyed the episode. I do hope you enjoyed sort of learning about the original series and Gene Roddenberry and sort of everything that kind of, that leads up to, what our next episode will be, which will be Star Trek The Motion Picture from 1979. And I I will say this now for those of you listening. I know there have been some questions about this. Uh, We will be watching the theatrical cut of Star Trek The Motion Picture because just like with the Godzilla episodes and trying to always watch the original Japanese cuts, um, I 
want to dig into the original theatrical cut because I think it's important to note what that movie was in its time period and, and sort of the movie that came out and how that reflected upon the Star Trek franchise. It's also a, a, a version of the movie that I have lots of thoughts about and I do want to dig into those specific thoughts about the movie and I have a very specific history with. So uh, we will be looking at the theatrical version. Of course, you can look forward in February to that, the Star Trek The Motion Picture episode and King Kong 1933. We will be looking at both of those in February and I will be joined by my co-host William uh, for both of those episodes and we're both very excited for the future of this podcast. So I think that's going to wrap this up, this wrap up uh, the first edition of Bonzilla Presents. Uh, I guess I'm going to plug away. BonzillaPod at gmail.com. You can email us, twitter.com slash Bonzilla007. Lots of fun stuff happening uh, recently with sort of more news about Godzilla versus Kong and, uh, you know, sort of that stuff is popping up. So feel free to reach out to us about that or about this episode again i am looking for feedback on this kind of style if maybe make it more scripted i don't know like or maybe keep keep this maybe you like to hear me ramble so just let me know guys twitter is the best way to reach us uh soundcloud.com slash bonzilla 007 and also you know we still have the facebook facebook.com slash bonzilla 007 though i really honestly haven't touched the facebook in a while so twitter is the best way to kind of keep in contact with us if you have anything to say uh, but until next time, guys, this was a lot of fun, and I'm very much looking forward to delving into Star Trek The Motion Picture. But until then, everybody, continue to, to live your lives and have a great 2021 so far. We'll see you next time.